Greetings, everyone. I'm Sophia Chai, Assistant Director of the ACHP Innovation Center, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2022 ACHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting, focusing on innovation in pharmacy. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. So first off, why? Why do we even like have artificial intelligence? Why do we need it? Well, we can see that um, basic human cognitive capacity is five plus or minus two items that we can keep in our working memory at any one time. So about seven things that we can keep in our memory for making decisions. If you look at the number of elements that are available for making clinical decisions <coughs> nowadays, it has grown exponentially. Uh, there's a lot of information with genomics and um, socioeconomics and all sorts of other um, things. So what is AI? Well, artificial intelligence describes a computer's ability to perform a task that would normally require human cognition. So it would be like the ability to see and kind of understand its surroundings, to process natural language, um, things like that. And in healthcare, when we're talking about AI, it's most always narrow AI. So that means it can do some, one thing really well, but it's not gonna be able to do a lot of other things. So for example, you could have an algorithm that, that does really well at identifying diabetic retinopathy, but it's not gonna be able to schedule your vacation for you. And it's not going to be able to even identify some like gross obvious eye conditions um, kind of thing. I kind of like to try to think of AI in a healthier mentality of augmented intelligence. And that's following the fundamental theorem of informatics in that the person plus the computer is greater than either one alone. And so when we're talking about AI in pharmacy, we really want to try to focus on the synergy of um, working in collaboration with the computer and algorithm and so on. A little bit of a brief history on AI in healthcare. So AI kind of really started in the 1950s. So it's been around for a really long time with Alan Turing and the Turing test. The term AI was actually coined in 1956 at a Dartmouth conference. And it grew in popularity in the 60s and 70s um, as there was more computing resources that grew but they had limited data sets and the results of their projects were not all that great. And so that caused a loss of interest in AI that they termed AI winter. Um, recently with the rapid adoption of electronic health records, vast availability of data and vastly improved cognitive or um, computing resources, there's been a resurgence in the interest of AI in healthcare. So a little bit more into like what are, what is AI like the technical nitty gritty kind of stuff? So artificial intelligence is this really broad topic. And like I said, anything that um, helps the computer system perform tasks that normally require human cognition, this can be as basic as things that you explicitly program or expert rules into a system. Um, this could be drug-drug interactions, kind of things like that. But when most people think of artificial intelligence, they're actually thinking of machine learning so machine learning uses um, mathematical approach for identifying patterns and relationships between um, inputs and outputs and um, 
can help with prediction of new things. So this can even be linear regressions, logistic regressions, things like that. Then we get into neural networks, which is a subtype of machine learning, and then deep learning, where you string multiple machine learning kind of algorithms together uh, to get some very complex models that can perform pretty well. So the most common form of machine learning is supervised machine learning. This is where you have features or inputs and then you're trying to predict some sort of label or output and you know the relationship between them. So for example, you have like lab values would be your features and then the development of sepsis, yes or no, would be your label and you could have cases where you have the features associated with the labels run it through the algorithm and it will learn the pattern um, associated with those. And then predict an outcome. And if there's sufficiently large data, then um, you can get some pretty good outcomes. So in actual practice, there's two ways of thinking about this with discrete data. So you're trying to identify like a yes or a no, like somebody had an adverse drug event or they didn't. And so that would be like um, a classification kind of problem or a logistic regression or if you're trying to predict continuous targets like if I give them insulin, what is their blood glucose going to be? That would be more of a regression kind of prediction. But it's super important to know your labels or the things that you're trying to predict. So there was a group of researchers out of the University of Michigan Medical School that looked at retrospective data and found that a vendor developed um, algorithm for predicting sepsis didn't perform all that well. Um, it would have triggered a ton of alerts and it missed two-thirds of sepsis cases. Now, when they went back and looked at it, of course the vendor argued that they didn't do the appropriate tuning beforehand or that there could be other things with like mapping or it was just a hypothetical kind of research study that they were doing. Um, but the researchers found that the algorithm developed by the vendor was trying to predict ICD-9 codes, which in the world of sepsis, ICD-9 codes are not a good label at all. Um, in a lot of research, it uses the CDC guidelines and there's other scoring systems that you can use to determine if somebody has sepsis or not. The other thing is in the development of the model, they were trying to predict encounter level sepsis so if the patient develops sepsis any time during their encounter, whereas the researchers were trying to predict um, prediction level performance or alerts of what is the risk of sepsis in the next X number of hours for this patient. And um, after this study, the vendor has since gone back and kind of reworked their model and came up with a version two that performs a lot better than the original one. So the next level uh, or a different kind of training mechanism for machine learning is unsupervised learning. And so this is where you have a lot of input data or a lot of features but you don't have the labels associated with them. And so these go through the algorithm and process, processes them and puts them into groups like clusters them together to identify things that are like each other. And um, you can look at this for clustering with continuous and discrete data. So this would be kind of like um, you could look at audit data and see if something is outside of the norm. You can identify outliers and like group patterns together. Or um, with continuous data, there's dimensionality reduction to help like simplify a problem. 
There's other methods such as semi-supervised. This is where you have a lot of examples, a lot of labeled data, um, but you have a lot of unlabeled data too. And so it's kind of a mix between supervised and unsupervised learning. And then there's reinforcement learning, which is really good for like learning to play digital games and stuff like the AlphaGo and um, Deep Blue chess playing. Um, this is where the computer kind of plays against itself and learns from millions and millions of trials and error. Um, healthcare doesn't really lend itself really well to this kind of form of learning because um, we try to not make a lot of errors. So a subset of machine learning is a neural network. And so this is called a neural network because it's tried, they try to model it after um, how uh, your brain and nervous system process information where you have a neuron accepts the output of one neuron, processes that and kind of sends a signal to another neuron. And so this is basically stringing together multiple machine learning kind of models to feed into the next layer. With the neural networks, they did okay, um, but they actually have found some new methods to do what's called deep learning, where you have a whole lot of these kind of hidden layers or a lot of um, one algorithm feeds into another algorithm that feeds into another algorithm. And this can create a lot more accuracy in the model, but it also tends to create these black box models where you have no idea how it got to what it did. It just got to that answer. So for evaluation, um, typically for the um, artificial intelligence models, the output is a classification of a yes or a no, or like a probability of a yes or a no. So that's kind of like the confidence that the model has in its answer. You also have discrimination that ranks how well it separates the population. So how well did it identify those with sepsis and how well it identified those that didn't ever develop sepsis. And then calibration looks at um, if it's predicting 73% of the time, then in 73% of the time of those cases did somebody actually develop sepsis or if it says it's gonna rain 73% chance of rain, does it actually rain 73% of the time it predicts that? An important thing though is that these do not measure clinical utility. And so we can also have with the evaluation, um, making it into a yes or a no, like an alert kind of system where you have a two by two table with true positives, false positives, true negatives, and create um, the outputs of sensitivity, specificity, and precision. But again, these really don't get at clinical utility. So another question that a lot of people have is, will AI replace me? Well, the short answer of it is no. Um, I love this quote by um, Kevin Scott, chief technology officer at Microsoft. He said, as soon as you utter the words artificial intelligence to an intelligent human being, they start making associations about their own intelligence about what's easy and hard for them, and they superimpose those expectations onto these software systems. However, there are some really important differences. So people, pharmacists, really excel at common sense, compassion, and context. And a lot of these other things, kind of abstraction, generalization, kinds of things. AI systems are terrible at those. Um, but they are really, really good at pattern identification and they have endless capacity. Like they don't get tired, they don't lose focus, they don't sleep, they can just keep going. Um, but not having really good common sense is a big hindrance.
Um, Eric Topol is a thought leader in the application of AI in healthcare. And um, in his book, Deep Medicine, um, how artificial intelligence can make healthcare human again, he says that the rise of machines has to be accompanied by heightened humaneness, with more time together, passion, and tenderness to make the care in healthcare real. And so he's not really advocating that we hand medicine over to the machines, but those things that are taking a lot of our time that are not really fulfilling as human beings, that we could hand that kind of stuff over to the computers and have more of a focus on those things that we do really good as people, like empathy, care, compassion, those kinds of things. But if you were to look at the state of AI in healthcare right now, this cartoon pretty much sums it up. Um, there's like these really difficult problems that we struggle with in healthcare, and it's like, well, we're just gonna create a model that will solve that, and then years and years later, it's like, well, this is really complicated. It's like, yes, it is. <laughs> and another consideration is um, this quote from George Box, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And um, what he means by that is like in the morning if I'm going to head out and the weather predicts that it's going to rain like 50-50% chance, it might rain or it might not rain, but I might grab my umbrella on the way out the door. So it's still useful if it does rain, but it very well could not rain. And so this is really important because the ultimate decisions are in the hands of the patients and the caregivers. A lot of times they have a lot of the additional context that the computer algorithms don't have. And um, it's important to look for bias in the models. They are trained on historical data and a lot of our historical data has systematic biases in it. Um, so that's something that we need to be cognizant of. And as models are developed, they grow stale over time because practice drifts and changes as new drugs come to market and leave market and so on. Or COVID happens. Um, another thing is to mind the gap. A key challenge in AI and the medication use process is the gap between the clinicians that understand the problems, the developers who create the models, and the people in finance that decide which ones they're gonna actually pay for. And so, if we can try to um, bridge that gap and try to help um, provide connections between the clinical problems that we're challenged with and the technical development, um, I think that's where we can really make a difference. And so with participation, this is looking at how can we um, prioritize the projects that we're working on. Pharmacists really understand the workflows really well and the data and kind of where it's stored, how reliable it is or not. Um, and can help with creating value sets for medications and so on. So how can we identify a good AI project? Well, the first thing you want to think about is this something that a human could do given enough time and the available data? Because if you're trying to get the computer to predict something where you don't have the data for it, it's never going to be able to do that. Um, is the task estimating a probability of a yes or no, like a classification problem? Or are you trying to guess a continuous target, like a regression? Or are you just trying to identify patterns and outliers in the data? That would be like an unsupervised machine learning kind of problem. And how well would the, re the results have to be from the model in order to be considered clinically useful? That this is actually gonna make a difference or be helpful in clinical practice. And another one that kind of gets overlooked a lot, I think, is what do we already know about the relationship between the the features and the labels, because some things could probably just be as simple as creating an expert system where we know the rules, we know the relationships, and we just program it into the system 
instead of having to do all this machine learning. So if we take a look at some examples of AI in pharmacy and healthcare, there are a lot of kind of AI models targeted at prediction, so predicting things, um, abnormal medication orders, adverse drug events, acute kidney injury, readmissions, sepsis, um, a lot of kinds of things like that. We also have some for pattern identification, so control substance diversion, auditing records, who's accessing charts and things like that, or even helping to display the data that we have in a more understandable way. In drug discovery and development, there's a lot of AI being used in this space. And they, uh, they even term it in silico de drug development in like the silicon chip of a, a computer. Um, it helps with identifying targets, how proteins fold, binding site affinity, guessing or predicting um, the side effects of certain drugs and chemicals. There's image processing. Image processing tends to use more of the deep um, learning <coughs> models. Um, and this could help with quality control and documentation, pill identification, screening for diseases like diabetic retinopathy, skin cancer, et cetera. And then there's other applications like personalized recommendations for patient products, um, inventory management, fraud detection, medication adherence, clinical decision support, and even monitoring of clinical decision support. And there's um, a new thing that our department chair is trying to emphasize a lot, that similar to how you would have like pharmacovigilance, it's called um, artificial intelligence vigilance of now that we have these models, how do they actually perform in the real world and do some research on that to see if it's actually helping or not, similar to how you would do pharmacoepidemiology studies. So some key takeaways. AI describes a computer's ability to do something that re normally requires human cognition, um, like perception, learning, vision, and so on. There are several approaches for making AI models, like expert rules, machine learning, um, deep learning, and so on. And um, a more healthy way of thinking about AI is augmented intelligence of the human plus the computer is greater than either one alone. So we can focus on the combination and we'll have a lot better outcomes that way. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to visit www.ashp.org innovation for more ways ASHP is helping to innovate pharmacy practice. And check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Sophia Chai from ASHP Official, and thank you for listening.